Here we go, November the 27th, 2016, lecture discussion number 262. Uh, I have a couple of letters. Uh, that uh, One you might find delightful, the other one you'll, you know, that well remains to be seen. This is uh, John from Pennsylvania. He sent me this uh, uh, that he had submitted. Uh, <laughs> it's a letter he got from Coca-Cola. Says, uh, thank you for contacting the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> uh, may we contact you regarding this feedback? He wrote them, Dear Diet Coke, this is my second letter. Apparently, my first was lost. <laughs> I am recommending Pastor Steve Cronister. There it cuts it off. What he was going to say was, uh, he says, the rest didn't print. Uh, I was suggesting a new video camera for all your free advertising. So people are out there advocating on our behalf, pestering Coca-Cola. That is hilarious. That's why we're on the Internet, just to cause those kinds of problems. Wouldn't you? I just would love to see somebody from Coca-Cola Company reading that letter from John. Um, hopefully he'll send me the rest of it, but I, I was so delighted I, I had to read it to you. Apparently they lost his first letter. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great stuff. Well, um, I have another letter from James uh, from Texas. Uh, he and Mark from Texas um, get into these discussions, and whenever they do, typically it has implications for the class, and today is not an exception. So I thought I would read this to you a little bit. Uh, those of you who don't know, these are gentlemen that... Um, Think deeply. All that is necessary to question the modern scientific understanding of time is to read Hawking's Turtle Book, which I have done. He's writing, this is James writing to Mark. Einstein's summary at the end of this email is somewhat correct. Time exists, but we simply have no independent way to measure it. In the papers discussed in this article, physicists suggest this, but are unwilling to challenge the dominant paradigm for fear of phase lock philosophical science ostracization. I can't even say ostracization. New words and phrase can be attributed to me. He writes. Okay, barely could get it out, James. That was a that was phase locked philoso philoso science ostracization. Ha. I hope, I hope you have a patent on that, sir. The concept of time as a way to measure the duration of events is not only deeply intuitive, it also plays an important role in our mathematical descriptions of physical systems. For instance, we define an object's speed as its, as its displacement per a given time, but some researchers theorize that this Newtonian idea of time as an absolute quantity that flows on its own, along with the idea that time is the fourth dimension of space-time, are incorrect. And then he goes on to discuss this. Um, and he thought that you would be interested, as he always does. And I don't want him to know that otherwise. So we'll, we'll fake it today. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, but as many of you are aware, James and Mark here are discussing the physics of time. So let me try to put it into a more recognizable form. Okay? Uh, is time real? That's the question. 
that's being discussed in that uh, letter that they wrote between each other. Is time real? Is time emergent from a mental property and therefore an illusion? That's the popular thought today, that time is not real. That we think time is real because we see examples of it. But time is just an illusion. Isaac Newton, he differed from that. He, he said, he proposed that time was absolute uh, in the sense that if nothing at all happened, nothing, nothingness, if nothing happened, time would nonetheless continue. That's Newton's position, meaning that it is unaffected by everything. It continues irrespective of any significant or insignificant change. Time is unaffected by nothingness. So one side says it's an illusion. The other side said Newtonian, Isaac Newton. Uh, and again, let me repeat this. I have read almost every scientific mind that I can find from all out history, all throughout history. It's one of my hobbies. Newton is ridiculous. He's the giant post-flood. Uh, what he was able to conceive is, I don't think, even approached. And I know the scientific community is very fond of uh, the physicists that began our current quantum positions. But uh, Newton was is alone, in my view. So the counter to Newton that is the change that time is not absolute or time is not unaffected by nothingness, that time would not exist in nothingness. See, the counter to Newton, again, is that change is real, but time is illusionary or fictitious. Time is merely a construct of the observation or the reflection of continuous change. So if I don't see something changing, then I can't, then time has no significance to me. There is no time. Time is something that I mentally conceive because I'm seeing change. Does that make sense? So change is real. Time is an illusion. Newton on the other side says, no, even if nothing happened, time still continues. Those are the two positions that James and Mark are discussing. Just in case you wonder if you're doing anything significant along the lines of discussion on email or Facebook face or whatever it is, this is what they do. <laughs> we, show, we, we show what we eat, take pictures of food. Okay. So the, we, the one side would say we are perceiving time by experiencing change and therefore time is a mental property and it requires observation. Now you're into the quantum physics observation effect. And knowing the observation effect very important uh, as you will go through uh, life uh, thinking uh, complexly. And so to be fair, Newton also saw time as having an absolute observer. He didn't see time as powerful. He said time had an absolute observer, and the source of time, therefore, was the one who created time. It is a created entity. And we mere humans, in Newton's perspective, only witness time because we mentally record slight differences, or all differences, in our experience. So the Newtonian position is that the origin of time demands a source that is not changing, an immutable source, and never changing, someone who is non-temporal, 
therefore eternal, immortal. And that would be somebody that is altogether different. That would be, uh, that would make time and the person who created time completely different from anything we can understand. Well, that's a biblical position. I hope you can recognize that. God establishes himself and says, I am immutable and I am in authority of time. The physics community is wrestling with this. They recognize the, uh, the, the argument has a philosophical, religious, theological element to it. Anyway, the physics community is continually arguing over the nature of time, with some insisting that the future does not exist. Have you heard that? You would see that would be a natural progression, that the future does not exist. The other side is equally firm that uh, it is not time that's the illusion, it is change that is the illusion. Would that make sense to you? Let me see if I can help it do that. The side that says change is an illusion, uh, that time is absolute, would be logical, because if time is absolute, there is nothing that is changing. Let me repeat that. One side says that there is no time, that there is only constant change. The argument against that, the Newtonian position, is no, time is absolute because time has an an eternal observer who sees time simultaneously. We do not. So we have the illusion of change. If I see all things simultaneously, is anything changing? I have one person nodding their head. I'm so happy. <laughs> so if I'm looking at time, I see no change. If I see all of time. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So there's your argument. Future doesn't exist to the person that says that, uh, that there is no time, there's just change. So... Again, the other side is that past, present, and future is in, there's all one time. Time is thus one time. So let's try it this way. See if this helps. Our lives are a successive event. We're doing it now. You're, you're watching me and you can tell that I'm changing. I'm doing things that you're recording. You are a recording device. And so it, if this was a series of snapshots of me standing in front of you, you would notice the difference in each snapshot. So it's a successive event. We experience a progression of photographs, if you will, that, that are ever-changing. Uh, that's one position. If you wish, think film projection, if that helps you visualize this view. Each photograph slightly distinct from the previous, right? Each frame. And you play them really quickly and they have motion, etc., uh, or, time is more like the entirety of the film. It isn't successive photographs, it's the whole film. You are just witnessing successive photographs, but somebody sees the whole film all at the same time, every frame. The beginning exists, the middle exists, and the end exists all simultaneously in one time. Time is one. And, and maybe the best I can do for you is a mu- music CD. It might be more applicable. You can put in a music CD and the songs will play in order. And you will hear them in order. And you think that's change. But all the, mu- all the music is on the CD at the same time. Does that make sense? 
It is possible that I could play all the songs simultaneously if I had the technological will. So, um, and, and realize what I just gave you with the CD, that's a finite description. You were going to wrestle with which came first, um, eventually at some point. Eternity or time? Which is greater, eternity or time? Who's bigger? I thought it advisable to take this up because, after all, where are we today? We are slogging through prophecy. We're slogging through Revelation 13, Revelation 17, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Matthew 24. That's primarily, but others on the list, Romans 11. This is a Romans 11 study, 9, 10, and 11 at its root. All of those passages are fundamentally prophecy. Yes, sir? What did I say? 262. Oh, it says 263 here. Well, Apparently, this is lecture number 263 for those of you who uh, insist that I stay successive and change and don't do them all simultaneously. Okay. These are prophetic passages, what we're doing. The prophecy, by definition, demonstrates something, doesn't it? It demonstrates that someone, whoever wrote this, if these prophecies are coming true, and they are, every one, absolutely perfectly. In fact, as you know, the scholars that contest the Bible do not believe that Daniel could have possibly predicted the order of the empires that seized Jerusalem. So they believe he didn't write it. It was written retroactively by somebody pretending to be Daniel. But then he has to deal with the rest of the scriptures, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and all the evidence that that isn't true. The number one evidence, of course, is the, the, the court of, the, of Daniel's court that came and saw the Christ child, right? So this is prophecy, and it requires an, obs- an absolute observation by a preceding mind of existing future events in future time. So somebody has to be able to look at the future events that exist and put them into Daniel's mind, and Daniel puts them in his time. But the other time, as the Bible relates it, currently exists in one time, doesn't it? Eventually, this discussion um, uh, makes you consider all the reality of change, and uh, the physics community deals with this, knowing that this is an issue, an issue that will be resolved. They had a, or well, they'll attempt to resolve. They had a big meeting here recently where they all got together and argued over this, and and the discussion moves onward into entropy and second law of thermodynamics. Um, my favorites because this becomes thermodynamics and gravity. Which do you think has a greater impact on time, gravity or thermodynamics? You'll love this discussion. We'll probably do it on Christmas because it brings such a crowd. I mean, the place just packs out. Huge crowd comes. Uh, I will put it, we'll advertise. Which do you think has the greatest impact on time? Uh, thermodynamics. Or gra- uh, obviously gravity. I mean, gravity always wins. What is gravity? How does it work? We can describe it. What is it? 
Off we go into that. Okay. All of that so that you recognize that any lecture that deals with prophecy is dealing with time and the implications of that are incredibly profound. Okay, we left off last week. That would be lecture 262 with a bevy of questions. And I probably should at least uh, serve up some reminders. If I had to pick of all those questions I threw at you, people complain, you never answer questions. Duh. That's the point, is to get you to answer the questions. I answer a lot of questions. I have answered lots of questions. I'm tired of it. It's time for you to answer your own questions. And by the way, oh, there it goes. Do we have any Kentucky Fried Chicken today? Oh, good. Well, at least I didn't do any damage to myself. If I answer them for you, they're never yours. You answer them and they become inside of you. Then you get to go out and ask people your questions. It's a lot of fun. But if I had to pick one of the questions last week as the most necessary of the necessary questions, what I would ask this one. This would be it because I have the, I'm being the possessor of the most holy dry race marker. If I had to pick, I, and I do have to pick, I get to pick, I would pick what specifically caused the war in heaven. The spiritual war, angel fighting angel, Revelation 12, 7 through 12. What causes it? This is some unexplainable, unimaginable war. Set aside the incredible characteristics that must exist when I have angels attacking each other. We asked last week, can an angel kill another angel? And what is killing an angel like? Killing us is a fairly simple um, enterprise. One, we're fragile. All it is is taking the mind, the soul, the spirit out of me and leaving the body unfunctioning and, and where it decays, it rots. But when I kill an angel, if it's possible to kill an angel, concede the hypothesis that they're fighting, so they must think they can kill each other, or they can at least harm each other, or move each other, corral, capture, that there's something going on. Why fight a war if there isn't any evidence that the war is being fought? My favorite video on uh, TubeU is the little kids karate fighting. Have you seen that? Oh, it's fantastic. They're two or three years old and they spin and they throw punches. They never come within six or seven feet of each other, but they're seriously attempting to. And it's just hilarious that they are convinced that they are damaging each other. I would do it, but I would need hospitalization, some kind of immediate emergency care. But if you ever get a chance to see that, it's fantastic. I don't believe that that's what's happening in the angelic realm. They are fighting. What does that look like? How does that sound? What is the force? What happens when an angel fights another angel? Um, but set that aside for today. Just consider it yourself. I wish uh, for you instead to focus last week, what is the causative process of Revelation 12, 7, or, uh, 7 through 12? What, what caused this war in heaven? And it's really... Uh, a pretty quick choice right off the bat. Someone chose to attack. 
Either Satan attacked Michael or Michael attacked Satan. So there's your choices. So there's your choices. They're limited to binary, Michael or Satan. So who did you pick? Who attacked who? The next immediate question is, why did God permit this war? Because he clearly could stop it. But he doesn't. And people are always asking, why does God permit stuff? It's always for the same reason, isn't it? You have to understand why things happen. Faithful angel versus rebellious angel is going on. And God could have interceded, but he does not. Which means that he, he could not, right? In the sense that he's omniscient. He knows, the, he knows the consequences of him interfering. Those consequences are such that he won't interfere. Same thing for you. God doesn't interfere in your life the way you want. I do not have a Mercedes Benz. Why doesn't he give me one? Because of the consequences of that decision. He's omniscient. He knows the consequences. Duh. He can't help but know. So, I submit that this, the fact that he does not interfere is, is the important element of this. Has God been restraining Michael and Satan? Does he stop them? Or is he restraining one or the other or both? And then does God just remove his restrictive force? Because that's something that God does. He removes himself. You are looking for God. Chances are you have moved away from him because he stands still a lot. But there are times when he moves himself. He removes. And you'll see that in the tribulation primarily. It's an incredible uh, period where he removes himself. He's still there. He's omnipresent. But uh, we get the human perspective that he has moved away from us. But anyway, uh, if God has a restrictive force and he removes the force, is it recognized by Satan and Michael that the force is gone? Can they feel the restrictive force? Are they aware of it? And once it is gone, then they begin to attack. The, the removal or the withdrawing of the restrictive force or the restraining force activates both armies and both attack in order to not be overrun by the other. So my position to you is, is God has put a force between uh, Michael and Satan so that they cannot attack and then it's removed and that causes this war. Why would God remove a restraining force? Hopefully you'll also remember that I was directly connecting the angelic realm war to the Antichrist campaign against Jerusalem. I put them side by side. I believe that, uh, obviously I believe that this is appropriate and will result in a further and more complete understanding of both of these uh, situations, both of these wars. I think the two are obviously related, not severable. And which means if I'm correct about that, duh then the cause of effect is determinable. That's what I'm trying to do. Figure out what causes this. Can I pinpoint a humanistic approach, a cause and effect of these, of these situations, these wars? Uh, all I have to do now is reassemble the order. And that's what we're going to do today, I hope, starting with the war of uh, Revelation 12 and the results of that war in heaven.
Uh, we're going to try to find what might have caused the war in heaven by looking at Armageddon. Daniel 7, Revelation 17, Revelation 13. So let's be about doing that and see if we can logically conclude things. The Bible tells you that you have been given mind and reason. And you are to reason your way through things. So he gives you the pieces and our job is to go about putting them together. He would like us to participate in the process. Why is that? So let's reread this again. Look at our pieces and try to start putting things in order today. Daniel 7, 8, and 9. Um, here we'll just start at 8. I was considering the horns. No, let's back up to 7. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. These are the, the visions of the four beasts. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the iron beast. So he's talking about the iron beast now, which is the... If you've been here, you, you know uh, what this is about. If not, don't worry, we'll get, you, we'll get you there. After this, I saw in a night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So, ten horns. As you know, the Iron Beast is discussing an empire that controls Israel, and this empire at some point at the end of its control will have ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another one, a little one, a little horn. Coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horns were the eyes like the eyes of a man. So... Light, eyes of a man. And so this this eleventh horn, this little horn, came up among the ten horns, and three of those horns were plucked out by the roots. So I had ten, eleventh came, and plucked out three. So far, so good. And there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So, to repeat, we've already known from Revelation 17.12 that these ten horns are ten kings. So at the end of this empire, the fourth empire that has control of Israel, there will be, it will split into ten kings. He told, uh, he, he let us know earlier that that it would split into two pieces. And we are currently living in those two pieces of this fourth empire, the Iron Empire. Started out as the Roman Empire and is now split into uh, West and East Rome. And so, well, that's where we currently reside in the year 2016. It eventually will become ten kings. We're not there yet. We're watching for the ten kings, right? Got all of that? I hope you do. But it tells us that after the, there are, after these ten, ten kings come up, another horn, the little horn, comes up and plucks out three. So the little horn kills three of the ten.
And in, in the living, and so the uh, three dead kings now. The eleventh horn has eyes like the eyes of a, of a man. I can't repeat that enough. The king seems to be a man, but he's more than a man. He can see more than a man can see. This is an idiom that reflects intelligence and capability that far exceeds human, human levels. So what we have is a man arises, ten kings show up at the end of the age of, this, of, of the Roman Empire. So the world will go into a ten-king unit. The Antichrist, the little horn, will rise up. He has intelligence that we cannot comprehend, greatly increased. He's like a man. He's speaking against the ancient of days. That's next in the, in the text. And so the obvious question is, is, what is he saying to the ancient of days? Because the ancient of days is Christ himself. Revelation 1.14. So we'll pick up the discussion after those verses 9 and 10, which describe Jesus Christ. Uh, one more time, Revelation 1.14, for those of you keeping track. And now we'll go to verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched, till the beast, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the ancient of days comes. Eyes like the eyes of a man. It is saying something. He's speaking. What's the obvious question? It's something pompous, it's something arrogant, and he is saying it to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is Creator God Himself, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ allows Him to speak and then kills Him. That's Daniel 7. Kills the horn. So those are your pieces. And that seems to be the order so far. So all we have to do now is figure out where it all fits. So that's so far. The Antichrist kills three of the ten kings, leaving eight. Ten minus three equals eight. Got it? Then Christ kills the Antichrist. But the rest of the beasts were prolonged for a season and a time. I ask why. How long is a season and a time? But don't be distracted. That's an important question. But stay on course. What are we trying to do? We have an angelic war in heaven. What caused it? I'm adding this. Did anything that I just write cause that angelic war? So next up is Revelation 12. So let's try that. And this is where the war is. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So Satan's angels lost. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night. He has been cast down. 
And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. So somebody else is there. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So let's put that up against what we just did. What we're doing is uh, we're having this... The proud, blasphemous words against the ancient of days, the ten horns, the eleventh horn, ten minus three equals eight. Three of the ten are dead, that means eight are left. And you know that, so I don't have to insult you by showing you how that fits. We are fabricating timeline for those of you keeping score at home. So I'm trying to get a right order to illustrate uh, when you suppose all of this has happened. So let's, uh, let's just try this. I have ten kings. The ten kings come before the war in heaven or after the war in heaven. What do you think? Most would say that it comes before. Then a little horn comes up and kills three. Does that happen before the war in heaven or after the war in heaven? Before or after the angelic war. So that's what we're, we're attempting to do. I have a war in heaven. The great dragon. The serpent of old. The devil. Satan. The deceiver. That's how it describes him in case anyone was confused as to who's being described. That serpent of old. That's a Genesis 3 reference. Because of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Satan deceives the whole world into thinking something, believing something. What does he deceive the whole world into believing? And that was an intentionally defective, obfuscated question, which is a clue as to the answer. Satan deceives the whole world into thinking something, believing something. What exactly did he want them to think? Intentionally defective, obfuscated question. That's a clue. What has Satan accomplished by deceiving all the world? Why does he do it? When is it done? Does he do it before or after he's been cast out of heaven? When does this worldwide deception occur? Is it after Satan and his army are defeated and removed? Why are they removed? What's the point? We can, can't we just beat them up and leave them in heaven? No, you've got to get them out. Why do we have to get them out? The whole point was to drive them out. And you see the angels ecstatic that they finally were allowed to throw these guys out of here. After how long? Thousands of years. So again, why are they removed and thrown to the earth? Why are they thrown to the earth? Subsequent to that, a declaration is made, a loud voice. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. How loud is loud? 
Who heard it? Was it heard on earth? Is it spiritual only or is it spiritual and and physical? What was the point of the war? The point of the war is to knock the accuser out of his out of the place that he is in. Where is he? What's he doing? He's accusing. We fight a war to stop him from accusing. What's he saying? About who? Where is he saying it? He fights to stay there. Who attacks who? Satan can no longer accuse. He's been cast down. Wrestle with what is the accusation? Who were the accused? Where exactly was he standing when he makes the accusations? The serpent of old who has a seed was accusing day and night, it says. Day, night and day. Who accused them before our God day and night. He's been cast down. And he's been stopped. Michael and his angels threw him out. What did this prove? It proved that Michael and his angels could throw him out. Did they know that? Did they think Satan would defeat them? But they found out otherwise. See, what did it prove or what did it disprove? I think both are true. I think something was proved and something therefore by extension was disproved. Satan is there thousands of years from the time he fell with an incredible army. I asked last week, who has the most powerful angels? Satan or Michael? Michael has the most. Who has the most powerful? This has gone on for thousands of years. Finally, the restraining force is removed. And who's going to win? Would Satan say, hey, if you don't interfere, I'm going to win? Would that be logical? Did that turn out to be true? Did Satan know that he wouldn't win? Did Sa- I asked last week again. I hope you can remember last week's questions because I keep going back to them on purpose. So what did this prove or disprove? What did every angel now know that may have been previously in doubt? In any event, the devil knows what time it is, doesn't he? He knows time. He is out of time. He knows the time is short. How does he know that? So now we'll move to Revelation 13. Then he stood. Your Bible might say, I stood. That's incorrect. Then Satan stood. It's clearly about verse 17 where it's talking about the dragon. He's enraged. He's trying to kill Israel. And he's trying to kill her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, then he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw, this is John speaking now, a monster rise up out of the sea, a beast having seven heads and ten horns, and on his 
horns, ten crowns. So here we have ten horns again, right? We know ten horns are ten kings from uh, Revelation 17. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him power, his power, his throne, and great authority. So the dragon gave his throne and his power to the beast. To the monster. And I saw that one of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshipped the dragon, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Where's Satan's throne at? He gave it to the beast. Satan's got a throne. Where's it at? And they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Who can kill this guy? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. That takes you back to Daniel with what he's speaking here, the pompous words. What are these blasphemies? He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints. And he has authority to continue for 42 months. Ten horns, seven heads. That's Daniel 7. Our our Daniel 7, four beasts are placed here at Revelation 13, 1 uh, 1 through uh, 7. And hopefully my diabolical plan of making you read this over and over again is starting to work its magic. You recognize these beasts. You have seen these before. Uh, The leopard, the bear, and the lion, except you saw it as the lion and the bear and the leopard. And then the fourth beast. This time you see the leopard, the bear, the lion, and the beast, or the iron beast. Why is the order not the same as Daniel 7? You ever ask those kinds of things? If you do, it's because I've made you strange. Which is another part of my plan. Why are they inverted? Why do you suppose that is a reverse order? Because of... Frame of reference or different observation point is now uh, what we're dealing with here. John is seeing the iron beast. He is alive at the time of the iron beast. He's not alive at the time of the ten kings. Either are we yet. He was not alive at the time they were separated into two legs. We are alive at the time it's separated into two entities, east and west um, Rome. None of us have experienced ten kings. That comes next. So John is looking back in time. Daniel is looking forward in time. A little detail is there so that we can recognize that both of them have an understanding that you can only get from somebody who sees time as one time. John would naturally look back. He would look back at um, 
the reverse order. It would be the leopard and then the bear and then the lion, or if you wish, the empire of Alexander the Great, the empire of the Medo-Persians, and the empire of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. He would look backwards, and now he is in the first phase, or the first stage, of the Roman Empire. These are the four empires that God has selected to give you the order to let you know that these four empires would take control of Jerusalem. And we will go through this process until he comes and removes the Gentiles from Jerusalem. The Gentiles still have Jerusalem today. And they've had it since 586 B.C. Right? And John is looking backwards. Daniel is looking forward. Think about the implications of that. Time perspective has changed. The observation point of time. And I could revert to the introductory physics lecture right here. And not one person here wants that. Not one. (laughs) With the exception of the fearless leader. But I will display wisdom and self-control for the first time ever. (coughs) Okay. This says in Revelation um, 13 that the Antichrist is going to die. Revelation 3. So let's put that on the board. Here the Ancient of Days kills the Antichrist, but the Antichrist is also dead, killed by somebody else. Here the Antichrist is thrown into the flame in the lake of fire. Here the Antichrist is dead, but then is alive again. So I should put dead alive. We learn that in Revelation. Now, that has to fit somewhere. Does the death of the Antichrist come before the angelic war or after the angelic war? Who killed him? Who's your choices? It's not the Ancient of Days, because that's Christ himself. When he kills him, he throws him into the fire. But somebody kills the Antichrist, and he comes back to life. Did that happen before the angelic war or after the angelic war? I could ask you to raise your hands, but you've been taught never to raise your hand. Which is really smart of you to learn that. It's not easy to teach people that. The the Antichrist resurrects. And this resurrection, it says, as we just read, causes all the worship, I'm sorry, all the world to worship Satan. Says the whole world worships Satan. Well, that's very important. So he's dead, now he's alive, and what the world does is worship Satan for that, and the beast. But Satan is given first billing here the dragon, the deceiver, the serpent, the old serpent, the devil. Obviously, Satan is very much involved in the resurrection of the Antichrist, which makes it really pretty apparent when it happens, right? Satan is busy. He's very busy. He's fighting a war with Michael. So does he resurrect the Antichrist prior to that war or after that war? And how does he get the power to resurrect the Antichrist? We asked a couple of weeks ago, how many times has the Antichrist been resurrected? And the answer is three. 
which is why the 666. Those are the three resurrections, among other things. It also speaks to the biological content of the Antichrist. So, I have the biological content and I have his three resurrections. When did he resurrect three times? Go find that in the Bible while I keep going. Satan, very busy, he's fighting the armies of the archangel Michael. It's not going well. When does the serpent of old find time to go down and resurrect his dead antichrist? Why can't the guy even stay alive here? I've got to go down and take care of him, right? The purpose seems clear. The whole purpose of the, of the antichrist is to deceive the entire world about something. What is that something? It ends up making the whole world worship Satan. And they knowingly worship Satan. They know who Christ is. They know the Ancient of Days. They've got the book. Same, they have the 144,000 Jews going around telling everybody, hey, don't do this. They do it anyway because Satan is able to convince them of something. And they worship him. I have long said that this is about human death. And that 666, Mark of the Beast, in addition to an economic aspect where he controls the economy of the world, economic Babylon, also provides a biological impact. You get that mark, you get a biological impact. You might think, being deceived, that it's good. It's not good, it's bad. You don't know that because you're deceived. So you take the mark because you see the mark as something good, something beautiful, something that you look at and desire. Something good for food, but it's death. I submit that this returns to the curse of Genesis 3.19. Dust, to dust you shall return. Death, decay, disease, wasting away, happening right now before your eyes to me. Dissolving, aging. Pick your description. Satan, the accuser, the adversary, is worshipped by all of the world because he does something. In order for that to happen, I believe he must eradicate death by natural processes. Natural causes, if you will. Just, just know that there's no such thing as natural causes that result in death. They're not natural by any definition for the ravages of sin. Probably a good time to draw another of my renowned artistic diagrams, but I've got to read Revelation uh, um, first, oh, let me go with this. I got to erase this now. Hopefully, you remember it. Prepare for one of my renowned diagrams. I'm inundated with requests. Please draw more. Listen, please. Can you just draw your soul? Can you draw? I suspect that those are fake emails manipulated by the. Uh, congregants yourselves because it's a thinly veiled attempt to get me to shut up uh, and turn my back on the class and every time I do that boom, you're all gone it's very smart I film you that, that, no, none of I haven't put a camera up yet I want to really bad but I haven't okay, where am I? there's a respite in the tribulational period, a cessation of judgment that occurs. God stops. He's bombarding the earth with incredible amounts of supernatural information. 
Why does he do that? Why does it, why seven years? Why not just say I've had enough? Instead I've got this time period. He injects time. He's doing it because time is mercy. Then he stops. The cessation of judgment, a time out for lack of a better term, between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgment. Why does God stop? What's accomplished by him stopping? Revelation 9.6, incredible verse there. It's a period that occurs for five months where mankind can't die. God shuts off physical death for humanity. They try to kill each other and they try to kill themselves and they can't. Five months, no death. People are jumping off of bridges, running into traffic. They can't kill themselves. I get asked a lot, how does he do that? (sighs) You shouldn't ever ask how he does it. That's disrespectful to him. Ask, what does it look like to me? Five months. Long debated, 916 Revelation. Why would God stop all death for five months? Why does he stop? Uh, Why does he have this time out between trumpets and bowls? What do you suppose? uh, I just want you to try to conceive of it. If if we had five months where we couldn't kill each other, or ourselves, how crazy would we be? Let's assume 30-day months, so you've got, uh, you've got uh, 150 days. Who's still stupid on day 151? Finds out, oops, guess the timeout's over. What would, how does man respond to the fact that they can't die, they can't kill anyone, including themselves? What's the lesson? Why does God do this? This is a lesson. Everything he does has a reason, a purpose. He's God. He has absolute power. Death is not outside his authority. It's inside his authority. He can suspend it at his choosing, and he does for five months. And before my diagram, let's go to Revelation 17, 12. How am I doing? Pretty good. By pretty good, I mean not as bad as usual. This is a difficult subject. It's impossible to do because you have to keep going back and forth and back and forth and it runs the time way out of sight. And I know that. Revelation 17, 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. as our horns and our kings again. Who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as the kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits, remember this all started out with a vision of this woman, this prostitute, the great whore of Babylon, in authority over the world. And she still is. Um, The harlot is... Where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, the ten kings, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and give their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled, and the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, Babylon. Okay, so diagram time. I have trumpets. I would draw a trumpet. 
I know what a trumpet looks like. I've yet to master it. But I won't. We have the, the seven trumpets. And then we have a period of time. We'll decide how big a period we have. And then we have the seven bowls. So, this is our time out. This is the middle of the tribulation. How long is the middle? And what happens during the middle? So we got to put things in place. This is a participatory event. I'm just going to give you some stuff. You're going to decide where it goes. I have the killing of three kings. This is my... We three kings are dead. It should be a moneymaker, don't you think? There weren't three kings from the Orient. There were thousands of members of the court of Daniel. It's a stupid song. But so I'm replacing it with we three kings are dead. I think. Big money. Somebody take me up on that. Then I have the killing of the Antichrist. It's not the, the last killing. Not the first killing, but the second killing. Killing of the Antichrist. Again, I ask you, who killed him? Wouldn't it be logical that it would be one of those ten kings? Maybe three of them. Wouldn't you think? Now I got, he comes and kills those guys. He kills three, that's ten minus eight. Ten minus three is eight. I have the war in heaven. And I know I'm going fast. If I can, just hang on. I have Satan thrown to earth. I'm going to call him Stan. I knew it's Stan. It's easy to make this mistake. Uh, I have the death of the two witnesses. You didn't cover that. This is a middle tribulational event. They put it somewhere. Um, the worship of Satan by the whole world. Ultimately, the worship of the beast by the whole world as well. Uh, the abomination of desolation. The abomination that makes desolate. Haven't covered that yet. That is where the temple is desecrated by the Antichrist. Some people think Antiochus Epiphanes not true. 666, also known as the final call, or the final thing that occurs of the gospel. In other words, once you take that mark, there is no that willful decision. There is no opportunity for salvation for you. Now I have I put it up here. We just read about the burning of the harlot. It's called Ecclesiastical Babylon. 
In other words, the ten kings destroy the worship system of the world and they replace it with something. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ where the saints are not judgment for salvation but judgment of works. The saints are before the throne and then the cave. Yes, I do. Resurrection of the Antichrist. Not the first resurrection, not the last resurrection, but the second resurrection. Okay, so you have, what is that? How many is that? Eleven things? So now I take suggestions. The killing of the three kings, the killing of the Antichrist, I've intentionally made it difficult to figure out the order, the war in heaven, Satan thrown to earth, death of the two witnesses, the worship of Satan and the beast by the entire world, the abomination of the temple, the final call, the 666 mark of the beast, which now eliminates you from salvation, the burning of ecclesiastical Babylon, uh, and so no longer do we have a world, one world religion in this respect that it, uh, it's replaced now with the worship of Satan. The judgment seat of Christ for the saints are before Christ in heaven. Um, and then the uh, resurrection, the second resurrection of the Antichrist after he is killed by, I'm submitting to you, the three kings. So, which one's first? What happened first? I'll take suggestions. Think of me as a piano player. Got to hurry. I'm going to tell you, number one is the judgment seat. That happened first. Before the war in heaven. Is Satan there at the judgment seat? Yes. What's he doing? He's accusing. What's he accusing them of? The restraining force is removed. He's not allowed to accuse the saints anymore. He gets crud kicked out of him and he's knocked to earth. So, first is the judgment seat. What do you think is second? I'm going to tell you that I think it is the killing of the Antichrist. And then, the war in heaven. So the judgment seat's going on. The Antichrist is killed by three of the ten kings. A war now starts in heaven. What started the war? Has to be, if I'm right. Has to be killing of the Antichrist. Why would the killing of the Antichrist cause a war in heaven? Why would God use that as the time where he pulls his restraining force? What would come after the war in heaven? should be obvious. Satan from. And then what would be next? Obvious. What would Satan do? He just got in a war because the Antichrist is killed. What's he going to do now? He's going to resurrect him. Where is that? What do we do next? Do you want to keep going? You do this at home. Okay. Some of you would rather have the buffet. 
The Antichrist is resurrected. What do you think he wants to do? What kind of guy is he? Huh? Well, first thing he's going to do, I think, is he's going to kill these guys. He's going to kill those three kings. They killed him. He ain't taking them out. The three kings that killed the Antichrist, how powerful are they over the other seven kings? They're the ones that killed the Antichrist. Yeah, clean that mess up. And he takes them out. And now, now, Bill, I agree with you. Now, he goes and he kills those two witnesses. How, how powerful are those two witnesses? They're incredible. I mean, that's Moses and Elijah, if you have that view. And I think that view prevails. These guys are calling fire down from heaven. They're shutting off rain. They are amazing. They can't be killed. And all of a sudden, the Antichrist kills them. So he kills the three kings, and now he's taken out the two witnesses. Uh, and then what does he do next? He's on a mission. He's got to knock something else out. He's got to get rid of that worldwide religion. religion because uh, he's going to replace it. So he tears down ecclesiastical Babylon and makes the woman desolate. And now... Uh, he goes to the temple and he makes create he does the abomination that makes desolate of the temple of God. What does that cause? Killing of the witnesses, killing of the three kings, destroying ecclesiastical Babylon, going into the temple of God and uh, putting himself on the throne of God and declaring himself to be God, what happens now? And he's been resurrected. Then we have a worldwide worship of the beast and Satan. And then number 11 is the final. If you take the mark because you worship Satan, that's the end of your opportunity to be saved in the tribulational period. You can disagree with me on that. Feel free to argue amongst yourselves while you go through the buffet. And next week, we will take another run at it that hopefully makes it more clear.